and when we get older, I think one of the, the you know the true hallmark features of of aging is that that connective tissue begins to break down, and it's it's much tougher to if you like, I won't say heal, but definitely if you've injured it to heal, uh, but it's a tougher tissue to remodel. And so uh, it's degradation as we get a little bit older is just, uh, we're not quite as good. And that's what I think most older athletes would say, you know, it's not my, my soft tissue, my muscle, it's my joints, right? I, it's my shoulders, it's my hips, my elbows, et cetera, my knees uh, that kind of, you know, and the phrase is usually wear out. Welcome to episode 20 of Imperfect Progress. I'm your host, Ann Guzman. First of all, I want to wish everyone a happy new year. And I know it's been a little bit daunting with COVID so far, but I'm trying to do the best I can to stay positive over here in Canada. And as part of that, I've decided to continue to record this podcast and bring you some amazing guests and some amazing knowledge since really it's a process I enjoy and who are we kidding, we can use all of the joy that we can get these days. So today's topic is one that I think we should all care deeply about and that is the role of aging in muscle loss and the associated factors that contribute to changes in our muscle function as we age. My guest today is Dr. Stuart Phillips, and Dr. Phillips is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and a member of the School of Medicine at McMaster University up here in Hamilton in Canada. He is Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health, and he's also the director of the McMaster University Physical Activity Centre of Excellence. If you've been reading any research about skeletal muscle protein turnover, there's a really good chance you've read one of the 230 original research papers that he's authored. Dr. Phillips' research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on the mechanisms of human skeletal muscle protein turnover. He also has a keen interest in diet and exercise-induced changes in body composition, and particularly in older persons. He's extremely enthusiastic, and that was really clear today during our conversation. He's an incredible mentor to so many students, and he really is the first to point out the contributions of his students and research fellows, and I really appreciate that in a scientist. I myself have had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Phillips, and I can say that beyond being an incredible scientist, he truly is a kind and genuine human being. Today, we talk about everything from changes in collagen in the muscles and joints, mitochondrial changes with age, and how those could express themselves practically in the way that we perform as athletes and people. We discuss how age impacts our ability to efficiently use protein and how we can tweak our nutrition in light of these changes. We also talked about other interesting topics related to aging, including the importance of social circles and dynamics, including spirituality, and we see those in areas of the world where older people seem to be thriving. Dr. Phillips leaves us with some clear big picture messages about what aging well really means to him, and that's based on his work in the field and his experiences working with the aging population and also how he himself has changed his mindset around 
what's considered exercise and why that mindset shift was really important to him because as his priorities and his time changed, um, it was important that that mindset changed as well. So rather than waxing on, uh, let's jump inside and learn from Dr. Phillips himself. I hope you gain as much knowledge and insight from this conversation as I did, and we'll see you inside. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure, Anne. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm super excited to dig into today's conversation. And as I mentioned in my introduction, I knew that you would be the perfect guest to talk about factors that contribute to losses in muscle mass and strength and functionality as we age. And also, how can we potentially mitigate these changes? And I know that we were just talking about it, but I think it's a super interesting topic that everyone should learn about, you know, even if you're young right now, or you're thinking about the future me, as you said, and even if we're thinking about our parents, or if you're a practitioner, because to me, it's, it's interesting and important because we have to think about prevention. And it's one thing to have life span, but you also want to have a quality in that, you know, lengthened lifespan. So, you know, by talking about this, we can definitely think about how we can maintain our functionality as we age, as opposed to, you know, just aging and then maybe realizing that we didn't pay enough attention and now we're, we're paying for it later on. Whenever I think about discussing change, I always want to know, well, change as compared to what? So as we were just talking about context, I thought it would make sense to start the conversation by having you discuss some of the factors that allow a healthy young person to build muscle mass and strength so that then we can have a baseline to compare to as we walk through some of the implications of aging. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, so s starting at young age, I mean, I definitely from the, you know, the time you're born up until 18 years of age, as you, know, you ostensibly become an adult, uh, you enjoy this period of your life where you're growing, of course. And it seems that just about everything that you do from an exercise standpoint is returned, particularly if you stick to it, um, in, in space, like you just get better and better and better and you get bigger and bigger and stronger and faster. And so long as you don't overdo it, you're probably going to make progress all the time. And I think that that probably applies to most athletes and people who train seriously, uh, into their twenties and thirties. And then I, I you know, I, I, uh, take my hat off to people that can stay in the game into their mid and late thirties and into their 40s, not the least of which is because life tends to get in the way. But I think at that point, um, aging, as we like, you know, we call it from a biological standpoint, the clock begins to tick and it gets harder, if not, um, you know, uh, almost impossible for some people to. And I think the big thing is to recover in, in the regeneration and remodeling and uh, you know the injuries that used to take one to two weeks now take four to six um that hard ride on a sunday and you could still go out and do a you know a big workout again on a monday you know you're, you're kind of like wow I'm, I'm not really finding that so i i think it's uh it's a gradual process there are some people who seem to be able to defy the odds um, you can look around professional sports or in, you know, competitive amateur sports and 
you can find examples of people that you know seemingly have a massive career longevity, but I would be willing to uh, venture that those people did something pretty special in the way they treated their bodies and their training early in life to put, you know, sort of like money in the bank, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely relate to uh, the slower recovery, (laughs) the the added injuries and absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's great to be young. Everything responds and, you know, you're not uh, having systems go awry, so to speak. And speaking of like, just when you were talking, I thought like Amber Nieben, 46 years old, just came fourth in the elite world championships. Like, I guess there are some people that can uh, defy the odds, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, if things like that aren't age defying. I don't know what is, right? It's, it's, it's astonishing uh, that, you know, four years shy of where most people would truly admit, like, I start to feel old, you know, when you turn 50, that you can turn into performance like that. So, yeah, clearly uh, well-planned, judicious training, good recovery, you know, and it all comes together on the day. And uh, somebody like that, uh, you know, gives us all hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Amber. Yeah. Our, um, so for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the mere mortals. I'm, I'm sorry that the, the history is, oh, the, the, the mechanism is quite a bit, de- a bit more depressing, unfortunately. I know, I know. Well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> right. So, so as we get older, obviously, these uh, very responsive processes that, occur in the muscle. Um, So just muscle contraction and generating force that we'd see in a young, healthy adult. You know, the term that I see a lot of is we start having some anabolic resistance, which impacts our ability to build muscle and strength. And depending on the severity might even lead to a disease called sarcopenia, which I'm sure we'll discuss. So I was hoping, you know, the big picture would, would say that, okay, so if we're losing some muscle Essentially, we have an imbalance somewhere between the muscle protein synthesis and muscle breakdown. But I was really hoping you could zoom in and first off, define anabolic resistance, because, you know, we probably have a lot of athletes listening. We also probably have some scientists listening. So I just want to make sure we don't get lost in terminology Um, and then speak to some of the factors that underpin those changes that we see in aging. So right down to muscle contraction and force production why are those happening and what are the implications that we would actually feel in our everyday life from those? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot to unpack, but I think certainly, you know, people in their twenties and into their thirties, particularly if they're still maintaining some sort of regular training schedule, will probably say, you know, they didn't notice anything. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to my, my own sort of, uh, very mediocre athletic career, but um, yeah, I, I think probably it's not until your mid to late thirties, and and then you're just kind of running out of time to find maybe the time to recover from training sessions. So, you know, what we talk about with is is the training or or you know putting in the time on the bike or lifting, whatever it is, is the stress for, and, and it's the recovery from the stress that's really where the magic happens. So. I always tell athletes, you know, it's great to do a big workout, but if you don't put in the recovery um, or if you under recover or overtrain, you know, pick your pick your uh, devil there, um, then you're not going to get the benefit back. And I think, you know, at some point you either run out of time 
or you run out of, you know, your biological clock and the way we age is just, or some one of those um, stimuli comes out of whack and it's probably nutritional first uh, that you begin to respond not quite as well to as you did when you were younger. And so anabolic resistance really uh, defines the process of anabolism, which is growth, or in, in later stages, it's also repair, uh, that becomes deficient when you get a bit older. So you just, you know, when you put the carbohydrates and the, and the proteins into the system, instead of restoring fuel like they would and remodeling damaged proteins like they would when you were young, uh, they do, but they do it slower uh, they, they're not quite as responsive and uh, that's part of the problem. You just recover a lot slower. And so it's harder to come back from those tough workouts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's super interesting about the response to nutrition. So essentially you would need, and I know that there's some research out there on this, but if you were a 20 year old doing X, you know, pretty intense training regime, or you were 60-year-old 60 doing the same thing, the amount of protein to recover optimally differs. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so I think one of the things is that, um, you know, the rate, as you spoke about, of, of protein synthesis, and, you know, I always use the analogy that proteins made up of amino acids, amino acids are the building blocks. And if you imagine all of the protein structures in your body, and everybody immediately thinks about muscle, but you know, it may be a newsflash, but 40% of your, your skeleton is actually collagen protein, right? It's, you know, your, your bones aren't just sticks of chalk. So they undergo remodeling of their protein structure as well, as does lots of other tissues, you know, including your, your skin, your liver, your intestines, everything. Um, but clearly we're focusing on muscle. And the, the main point is, is that when you're 20, if you ingest, say, let's say 20 grams of protein, you make use of that very, very efficiently. You use it very well. Uh, a lot of it gets directed to muscle repair and remodeling. Uh, that same dose of protein when you're 60, all of a sudden isn't quite as effective. In other words, you're not as good or as efficient at utilizing the amino acids in that protein. And, you know, that's, that's effectively, you know, the definition of what we call uh, anabolic resistance. Yeah. And that's super important because, I mean, if you're kind of sticking with what you were doing when you're 20 and hoping for the same uh, return on your investment, um, although we're going to talk about other factors that might hinder that, this is, as you were saying, one of the most important ones. Um, I wanted to kind of come back to like the actual muscle itself and like, how does it change as we're aging as far as literally just contracting? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's the, the contractile process remains essentially the same. I, I do think that one of the things that's probably worth mentioning and probably lost on a, a lot of people is that, you know, they imagine your muscle as this sort of, you know, it's a protein filled, if you like, bag. Um, but I point out to people that the structure that sort of surrounds muscle fibers that really gives it a lot of its strength is a lattice of uh, collagen. It's almost like a scaffold uh, that at the end of the muscle tapers and eventually then becomes the tendon uh, that attaches to the bone. And then, of course, that's the lever that pulls your, your bone. Um, and when we get older, I think one of the, you know, the true 
hallmark features of, of aging is that that connective tissue begins to break down. And it's, it's much tougher to, if you like, I won't say heal, but definitely if you've injured it to heal, uh, but it's a tougher tissue to remodel. And so uh, it's degradation as we get a little bit older is just, uh, we're not quite as good. And that's what I think most older athletes would say, you know, it's not my, my soft tissue, my muscle, it's my joints, right? I, it's my shoulders, it's my hips, my elbows, et cetera, my knees, uh, that kind of, you know, and the phrase is usually wear out. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, you can try and contract, but if the muscle, if the, if the proteinaceous bag, as we said, uh, is smaller because you're not doing as much and you're not eating as much protein. And if you did, your muscle's not as good as you, at, at using it. Uh, but if, then if this, you know, collagenous lattice and the tendons and all of the connective tissue that you have in between the two bones as well is all kind of worn down and et cetera, then uh, the whole system begins to be a little bit shaky, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the important adaptation as you get older, to be fair. So if you were to translate that to, um, I guess, like a practical example, would you say that because of that change in the collagen and the ligaments that it would impact your explosiveness as an, as an athlete? Well, it, it definitely is, is going to limit you and put you at greater risk for, you know, you say explosiveness or plyometrics, something eccentric, you know, that quick movement at one point um, that, you know, as you get a little bit older, you find either A, it's harder, B, you can't do it. You're, you're not quite as, as uh, you know, you don't have as much snap, as the coach would say, as you, as you did before, or you try and do it. And unfortunately, it does go snap, you know, somebody ruptures or tears and, and those, those are things that, and it's not that they can't happen in young people, they do, um, but they're far more prevalent in older athletes. So yeah, definitely you use that, you lose, excuse me, uh, that sort of, you know, that power end of things. And that's, that's, in fact, if we were to test muscle power, that would be, I think, a much more sensitive indicator of what's happening in a muscle with aging than muscle force, which declines, but a little bit slower than power. So would you say then as someone gets older, and I guess we would really have to define the term older to answer this question, <laughs> but um, yeah. would you start functioning more in a type one fiber kind of way, more aerobic, unless you really, really paid attention and tried to work on your explosiveness? Yeah, you probably could uh, maintain that sort of explosive power end of things with enough training. Uh, I do think that as you get older, the remodeling and recover of the uh, recovery of those uh, those collagen fibers and the collagenous structures, and particularly uh, tendons and ligaments, uh, is tougher. So most people do less of it as they get older. There's another phenomenon that happens as we age, um, and that is that. Uh, the fast type two fibers actually begin to lose some of their nerve uh, innervation. And and instead of the fiber dying, which is what usually happens, sometimes they get re-innervated by the type one uh, neurons. So we lose type two fibers because the neuron drops out and they sort of become quote unquote type one fibers because they're rescued by a type one nerve. So it's, uh, it's sort of an odd process, but it does happen. Um, so and even masters athletes are 
not resistant to this process, although there's evidence to suggest that they are to some degree protected against it. So another another win for exercise. Yeah, well, that's super interesting because, and now I'm not sure if this is related, but you've probably seen some research in masters, um, female endurance athletes and that they improve with age. Do you think that's related? Yeah. You know what? I I don't know. It's, it's sort of one of these, the, the male female comparison is always this paradox that is the events, particularly as they get longer, the divergence between men and women becomes less and less. Right. And, and then I begin to wonder whether women as they maybe get older and more experienced and I'll, I'll just call it maybe the, they get a little bit more wily in their training and they learn how to do things right, but they've already got the base. Maybe that's the explanation or maybe there's some neural phenomenon that ties it in. It's a, it's an intriguing, you know, idea to think about. And I don't know that I have a good answer, but it's, it's certainly fascinating. Yeah, no, for sure. I know it's great to see uh, like masters, female athletes kind of, excelling out there in the, the new gravel races and the ultras and the runners. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've spoken about like the changes in collagen and explosiveness and stuff. I wanted to ask you about changes in ATP production and the mitochondria, because even thinking about athletes, I'm curious, can you, you know, prevent the changes there? And now we're just talking about how you actually might be able to improve some aspects of your fitness, um, theoretically. So what's changing with the mitochondria as we age in your ATP production? Yeah, I, I think, uh, there are probably, you know, four or five sort of theories of aging. Um, and one of them is, is a mitochondrial theory of aging and, uh, you know, your mitochondria, it hasn't changed since you probably learned in grade nine or 10 biology. It's, or whatever grade you learn it in now, it's the powerhouse of the cell. And, you know, so the ATP production is really a function of, you know, how efficiently these things work and how many of them you have in your cell. And so, you know, we, we know, for example, the more you endurance train, you get more mitochondria. And even if you do some resistance training, you've probably got more than the average person who's, you know, sitting on the couch. Um, as we get older, they, they tend to not function as well. I mean, it's it's like everything else. The, the function begins to decline, whether that's a function of the fact that as you age, you're doing less. In other words, and that, that like that is a fun, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, an earthworm or, a you know, a human being, everything as it gets older does less. That's just that the way things go. Um, but it's also tied into you know, the fact that the mitochondria has a little bit of its own DNA, right? We actually, we don't have all the genes in our DNA to produce all the proteins that are within a mitochondria. So some of that DNA gets damaged, uh, some of our DNA gets damaged, and, you know, the mitochondrial function just tends to decline. Um, And as a result, our production of ATP not quite as efficient, we generate what are called reactive oxygen species. They wreak havoc inside the cell. I know this all sounds very depressing, but you know one of the things to walk away with, and this is a fundamental truism, no matter which theory of aging we talk about, is that models of superior quote unquote aging are really based around optimal you know ath- athletic performance. So masters athletes, be they runners or 
cyclists or even you know masters uh we're, we're getting enough of them now masters triathletes and not so much masters lifters i'll be honest with you because they tend to uh burn out a little earlier and fade away so at some point you gotta i think climb out from under the bar and realize you got to do something else or if you you know um then it, you tend to live a healthier life that's and that's a function probably good mitochondria and you know knock down theories three four five and six of your your best aging theory okay so you're saying that if you are an athlete when you're younger that helps you when you're older i think that um that pattern and if you particularly if you persist in the training that you do uh, is setting yourself up for a better condition later in life. And it, you know, one of the, the, the axioms again is to sort of appreciate that it's much easier to prevent and slow decline than it is, let's say, in your 40s or 50s to try and reverse the steep decline. And so, you know, to have some sort of, you know, epiphany moment in your 50s, you know, hopefully later in life, but maybe it, it occurs even in your forties, you know, a health scare and somebody says, you know what, you need to do something about your, you know, your, your weight, your, your physical activity, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Um, and you go, yeah, I, I got to do something instead, you know, maybe in your thirties, you come up with an exercise plan. If you exit your organized sport to keep yourself physically active, you know, throughout your thirties into your forties and, and then modify, uh, as I've learned, into your 50s as well, that um, it's not always about setting PRs. My, my event horizon now is uh, several decades down the road. So that's that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And it's a really good point. I mean, I, what came to mind for me when you were talking there was just the um, idea of, you know, sometimes when you've been super active as a younger adult and then you get a little bit older and you're only you know, your only relationship with sport is a two hour workout. And so you kind of get like, oh, if I can't do it, then I'm not going to do anything. But I know that out of McMaster, you've had a lot of research just showing even, you know, the benefits of short, uh, I think you guys refer to them as exercise snacks, um, yeah. bouts of exercise. And, you know, I think that sometimes we have to maybe shift away from our athlete, um, mindset if life gets in the way and you don't have that time anymore and do those like shorter bouts and know that you know something is better than nothing mentality yeah no absolutely i i you know i've um i'll, I'll be honest is that um it's my colleague uh, dr marty gabala at mcmaster who's really and he's changed my mind about how i view exercise it used to be you know, I, uh, you know, you come from a background of if you don't put in the time, it's not worth it. And I guess as an athlete, you sort of, you truly buy into, it's got to be, you know, blood, sweat and tears, so to speak. At some point, as you say, uh, it can't always be like that. You, you, you don't have the time, uh, you, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of things stack up. And it's probably important more than anything to translate for people who maybe don't have that as part of their history, but still want to live a, a you know an active and healthy life. That we can get a lot done in a short period of time. And so, you know, I used to think that workouts that were less than half an hour in duration were, you know, and I'll be honest, simply a waste of time. 
Uh, and you know, nothing now in my mind can be further from the truth. So yeah, I'm a convert. <clears throat> I find little snippets of my day to, you know, go out and just, uh, go for a quick walk around the block or up and down a flight of stairs. And, uh, when, when I, when I know I'm not going to be able to fit in uh, a full workout and, uh, you know, live today to, uh, to maybe do something tomorrow. So, uh, absolutely great, great takeaway message there. Great. Um, I'm I'm the same way. I never thought I would uh, take that on, but I do the same thing, especially if you're sitting a lot, like to even go walk up the stairs a few times. Like we know that even that is beneficial. Um, it's You're making me think about, since we were talking about, you know, if you were an athlete and thank you for making the point that if you weren't an athlete, it's never too late to start. And you too can start with these small exercise snacks. Um, but let's say You've been an endurance athlete. I just come a little bit from that world. So I had this question in mind. And let's say, for example, and I'm not stereotyping because we know that endurance athletes come in every size. But if you do happen to be an endurance athlete who doesn't carry a lot of muscle and you're strong, though, so you're strong, but your muscle mass is not large. As you age, are you at a disadvantage there because you still have the strength? But we know that, you know, fragility can come from losing muscle mass and strength and then functionality. So do you think it would be a good investment of time to purposely try to increase your muscle mass um, before you get to the point that you're older and really, really lean? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh you know, like my athletic journey, like everything I ever did from a, from a training perspective was always designed to play team sports that involved an aspect of strength, power, and, but then had, you know, aerobic endurance as well. So, you know, my, my number one sport was, was rugby. And I know everybody sort of thinks that's all about brute force and power, but, you know, unlike football, it's, it's 80 continuous minutes or while well, obviously two halves 40 minute halves of running around like you you can't be uh unfit and, and play it at a, a decent level for sure so it was always training to maximize my aerobic capacity but then at the same time to have a period where i needed to rely on on strength and and power um you know i i and then, you know, other phases in my life, and I know it's yeah, people who know me kind of will, will chuckle at this. Um, I, I ran marathons. Like I spent, I was running, you know, 80 to 100 miles a week. And I say miles because I was doing it in the United States. So let's just, let's just say uh, uh, I had a few 100 mile weeks. And I know it's like, I think about them now and I think, what was I doing? Because I don't think I'm built to do that. But I, I weighed a lot less than, than I do now. I think I'm at my happy place now, which is a, a blend between the two. But if you're, you know, this, this sort of, you know, fairly lean, uh, but, you know, pretty strong endurance athlete, you're probably going to be fine. You know, I mean, in the end, the lift that really matters is the one to get yourself out of the chair, right? And at, at some point in our, our lives, where, you know, hopefully we don't get faced with the fact that we just simply can't get out of a chair. Because when you when you can't do that, obviously you're in full-time institutionalized care and, you know, you're dependent on somebody else. So let's just say that at some point, I think as you get older, 
it's good for probably just about everybody to do a little bit of strength work. Um, only because the preservation of some activities, like getting out of a chair, like crossing the street, like going up and down flights of stairs, becomes very strength and also probably a little bit balance dependent. And in that sense, not not no hack on endurance training at all. I mean, we know so much about how health span has improved with endurance exercise that it would be impossible for me to argue with as you know, a primary modality of exercise. But being stronger later in life, I think, is an advantage. And we've got lots of data to suggest that that's the case, too. So, uh, you know, the, the, the answer really is uh, you've probably got to do a little bit of both. But I think as you get older, that, that strength aspect, it probably needs a little bit of work on, for, from just about anybody if you're not doing it already. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's great to see. Um, I know even like 10 years ago when I was racing, I would say that a lot of endurance athletes were not lifting weights during the season. And you see now that that's really shifted. And there's a lot of programs geared towards, you know, endurance cyclists and runners that they're doing some sort of maintenance throughout the year. And not even, not to mention like bone health is obviously important as well. So you know, there's that to keep in mind where in the past, sometimes I feel like a lot of athletes would pull the plug on that in January, go do the season and then get back in the gym in October. And it's like, wow, it's a long time to just be, you know, yeah. have your spine just floating on your bike um, <laughs> without any resistance on it. And I think yeah. it's hard too, when you're, you know, like cyclists are a great example. I mean, they do massive volumes, none of it weight supported and you, but you're outside and you're exercising all the time. And then you tell them like, you know, you have the bone density of a 60 year old woman. They're like, what? You know, and I just say like, you, you need to load the, like you, your skeleton is mechanically sensitive, just like your muscle is, but it's uh it's an interesting reaction to hear, you know, some of those athletes go, wow, that I never even thought about that. And, and it, it's true. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. It's a big one. Um, now I want to throw in uh, this great word inflammation because well, I know you're on social media, so it's always great when <laughs> scientists uh, scientists are on social media. I really appreciate seeing more and more in that uh, of that because you know this is one of these words that just gets used in so many contexts, and we know that you know acute inflammation from training, you know that's that has a, a purpose and is a good thing, but. Then, you know, there's chronic inflammation from aging. So I kind of wanted to have you speak to, you know, tell us about inflammation and maybe the difference between acute and chronic, but in relation to aging, how is that, you know, impacting our muscle and even in relation to excess body fat, you know, how is inflammation related there as well? Yeah, I, I think one of the things and the points to be clear on when we talk about, you know, what we call chronic inflammation versus acute inflammation is that most people would probably identify with acute inflammation being the consequence of some type of, you know, maybe overuse or injury and you get pain. And, and I think that that's, you know, pretty uh, distinguishable from this sort of chronic, what we call low grade inflammation that has no basis in terms of, you know, an injury or an infection or anything like that. It just, it, it's there. And it probably is, as you said, it's a function of uh, 
body fat that's excessive in the amount that we have. Um, and there's an inflammatory process that's going on, the, the origins of which are very difficult to, to understand. Again, you know, the win for exercise is that exercise is a, is a great countermeasure against uh, chronic inflammation. Now, exercise itself creates an inflammatory state. That's part of what it does. Uh, the inflammation acutely um, is part of the adaptive process. And in fact, you know, there's been several studies now suggest that taking these megadose vitamins um, that, you know, I've in a previous life, it seems like a previous life when I was a graduate student where, you know, massive doses of these antioxidant vitamins were prescribed to, you know, basically quench these reactive oxygen species. And we're, we're now beginning to understand that actually you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to take a lot of these high dose purified vitamins because those reactive oxygen species are important in the adaptive process. So, you know, some inflammation, good, chronic, low grade, and for a long period of time, uh, inflammation, bad, which is, you know, it seems like aspirin does just about anything these days, but it's one of the reasons why low dose aspirin is, is prescribed. It's to essentially keep the lid on that chronic, low grade, um, chronic inflammation. And how does aging itself and the aging of cells contribute to that? Well, this is, you know, this is another one of these theories of aging is the, you know, I, I don't know who came up with it first, but it was a pretty, pretty good one is to call it inflammaging, mm, right? So right. it was this chronic low grade age related inflammation. And, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it gets higher as you get older, it's probably higher in people who are a little bit overweight and sedentary. And uh, it becomes a problem uh, for lots of reasons. It's tied to just an excessive reactive oxygen species production. Mm -hmm. And again, so can that be countered with exercise or diet? Well, I, I think certainly exercise is good in combating that. Uh, from a dietary perspective, uh, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes here. And uh, let me just say that... Um, Probably, I know people will hate this, but diets that are moderate in fruits and vegetables, rich polyphenolics, and yes, red wines on that list, not in excess, um, are probably a good thing. Uh, they're yeah. going to slow down uh, inflammation for sure. Yeah, I know everyone hates the boring answer, but unfortunately, sometimes with nutrition, the boring answer is the answer. And, you know, we'll probably it, it, look back and... You know, it doesn't sell books. Uh, you don't spend much time on the on the New York bestseller with you know, everything in moderation. Everybody goes, oh, that moderation guy again, you know, and I'm like, sorry. Those fruits and vegetables, get on with it. Um, okay, so, I mean... I'm going to keep digging because I feel like uh, these terms get thrown around a lot. And I kind of want you to go here and speak to cellular senescence. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> well, you know, uh, theories of aging, right? And uh, so we've done mitochondria, we've done inflammation. So senescence, the idea is that uh, at some point, uh, cells, as we know, uh, they divide, they, uh, they multiply, they replicate. In a controlled fashion, that's great. Um, uncontrolled, obviously, that's cancer. We don't want that. 
Uh, but senescence is really the loss of a cell's ability to divide and so renew itself, but then it doesn't die. And so cells die through essentially two processes. One is necrosis and the other one is apoptosis. And let's just say without going into the nitty gritty details that a cell that doesn't die when it's supposed to is not a good thing. Uh, these cells, they stick around. Uh, things tend to go wrong inside them. That could be a function of poor mitochondria, could be a lot of things, but they begin to secrete proteins that are not good. And these are what we call senescent cells. And as we age, we begin to accumulate more and more of these. Uh, they probably have some genesis or origin in adipose tissue or fat tissue. They're probably accelerated in conditions of insulin resistance or, you know, uh, type 2 diabetes. Um, and so it's probably not surprising that uh, people who have these, these insults, these metabolic insults like diabetes earlier in life experience a greater proportion of their cells being in this senescent state. And these senescent cells then begin to secrete these senescence-associated secretory secretory proteins called SASPs. And these SASPs are, you know, they contain all kinds of stuff that we really don't want to be in circulation because it's going to do damage and uh, have a negative consequence in other tissues. So um, my understanding of it, which is, you know, not that great, I'll admit, is that it's, again, another win for exercise, lower in people who are, you know, habitually physically active and in people who consume uh, diets that are rich in lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, and um, probably who have a lot of balance in their life from a, from a mental and physical standpoint. So again, you know, chalk one up for the, the balanced lifestyle, low stress, you know, probably things in moderation, even a glass of wine every now and again, um, and, uh, and go from there. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for explaining that. And I know that the reason I wanted to bring it up is um, it actually is a really surprisingly um, common topic that I see on social media. So within more of the science social media. And then yeah, I was going to say, you must be hanging out with some different people than I see on social media. But uh, <laughs> there's uh, a I difference between and you and I, we, we chat on Twitter and I, I enjoy Twitter for lots of reasons. But, I, you know, you, I know you're on there, too. I'm also on Instagram, and that's a whole different world over there. There's not a lot of senescence chat on Instagram, I think. <laughs> not as much, but that's where oh. I see some of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, and then, I mean, and in relation to it comes uh, the cold baths and the saunas and the exercise yeah. related to it. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where I was going. But, yeah, yeah. it's great to, to have, you know, maybe someone's listening and now they're interested in learning more about that. So that's kind of Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. Really, a really fascinating topic for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and another fascinating one, I was hoping you could speak to, you know, both for females and males, you know, some of the basic changes we see in hormones. And then also, you know, with those hormonal changes, we see a lot of um, talk, I guess, about supplements or pharmacological therapies. And so my question is, you know, with the changes that you're going to tell us about, what do you think is, you know, is there a benefit to taking a supplement or a drug? And at what point is it more of a risk than a benefit? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, a lot to unpack. I'll give you sort of. I think I've you know I've thought about this from a lot of different aspects. We spend a lot of years. Um, you know, so this will be my twenty fourth year at McMaster. So, you know, I'd say almost the first ten to twelve years, the first half of my career here was spent looking at what happens in young people, and I was really interested in helping them get bigger, stronger, faster. You know, everything like that. And then maybe uh, as my interest changed and maybe as I got older and I'm also now the director of uh, the Physical Activity Center of Excellence, which is, you know, that's 500 community people, the average age of which is about about 70. So, again, that's, uh, you know, my, my templates changed a little bit. Um, what happens, you know, clearly uh, in women, menopause is a watershed moment uh, and it's not a moment. I you know, don't want to give anybody the wrong impression, but, you know, it's a watershed uh, time in a woman's life where obviously she's going to experience a, a large decline in estrogen. So estrogen for women is obviously the primary sex hormone that gives them all of the secondary sex characteristics through puberty, but it's also the primary uh, hormone that stimulates anabolism of bone. And so its loss at, at menopause is, you know, everybody knows this, obviously, you know, you're, you're at greater risk for fractures. You're at greater risk, uh, probably for skeletal muscle loss as well. It, it's not a, a hugely, uh, anabolic hormone, but it does, it does play a role. Uh, there's also, uh, changes in cardiovascular profile, changes in cognition, all kinds of things. And so, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, who would build a system that would lose a hormone that has so many good things going on. And, you know, it's clearly, teleologically it's a loss in reproductive capacity let's call it what it is right yeah um and i guess the question then becomes you know should i put this hormone back or take something that will put this hormone back or try and restore the balance and one of the things i i point out to people is that um the reproductive cancers that women you know really need to concern themselves about is obviously breast cancer number one but you know, uh, ovarian or uterine cancer will be reproductive tissues as well. And uh, a lot of them are, are driven by sex steroids like estrogen. And their therapies are actually uh, to block uh, the, the actions of, of estrogens. So I'm, I'm always a little bit uh, reluctant to say, you know, hormone replacement therapy is a good idea, but maybe not because of, and then you'd get into the women's health initiative data. And honestly, it's gotten very, very complicated. So let me just say this is that I do think that there probably are some supplements which do something, but chances are, uh, this is Phillips rules of supplements, right? If, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And if it is too good to be, to be true, if you're an athlete, it's banned. And if you're somebody who's aging, then you need a prescription for it. So if you read about a supplement that claims, you know, X, Y, Z, and you go, oh my, you know, then you got to squint a little bit. So that's, that's my, my lesson on estrogen. And it's much easier to talk about testosterone because there's really nothing out there that does anything to boost testosterone levels. And that's the one hormone that, you know, it doesn't obviously drop off the table like estrogen. It declines gradually. And in some men, obviously, it does become a problem. And 
you know, hypogonadal men are uh, at, at a disadvantage on a number of levels, but to restore it in men that are not hypogonadal. So, you know, guys who are just like, I need to have X, Y, Z. I got to I got to uh, you know, I, 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 I'm opposed to that. I, I don't think it's a good idea. And the top cancer in men over 40 is prostate cancer. And uh, that's a testosterone driven cancer guys. So uh, I think I'd stay away from that stuff. If I were, if I were, uh, you know, somebody making that decision out there, keep exercising. That's your best therapy out there. And does exercise increase testosterone? Uh, it doesn't really do too much, to be honest with you. I know it's a depressing thought, but it uh, it has so many other good aspects that are part of um, you know the low testosterone and even low estrogen side of the spectrum uh, that it mitigates. That I think it's uh, it's almost impossible to age successfully without it in some way, shape, or form. Unfortunately. Not so much on the on the hormone side of things, but maybe you feel a whole lot better, maybe even if your hormones are lower. Mm-hmm. And what about growth hormone? Oh, growth hormone. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is growth hormone is the darling of a, a lot of guys who get on testosterone as well. Uh, you know, just want to be a hundred percent clear about growth hormone. So growth hormone has no effects on muscle. And I know everybody, you know, screech a needle across the record. And I always point out to people that, you know, people who are uh, deficient in growth hormone, uh, you know, a condition we refer to as dwarfism, uh, results in, in men and women who are short of stature. And if you get growth hormone into people who have classic hypopituitarism or low growth hormone, they get taller. And, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, People who have high growth hormone and in excess are, you know, that's giantism, right? They're just tall. They're not muscular. And just like people who are short of stature, who have, you know, classic hypopituitarism are not muscularly wasted. So growth hormone is a great stimulator of bone growth and in particular bone collagen. And in, in fact, you know, systemic collagen synthesis. So one of the things that growth hormone does that that people love is that first of all, it accelerates the, uh, the burning of body fat and it stimulates a little bit of collagen production, uh, the deficiency of which underneath your skin uh, is the origin of wrinkles. So take your growth hormone, you get a little bit skinnier, uh, you get a few, a few less wrinkles. Um, unfortunately, growth hormone, as its name implies, is the stimulator of growth. So look out for any cells that you know like to drink up growth hormones to fuel their growth. And, you know, I I have to question whether you're going to increase your risk for certain types of cancer. Super interesting. No, thank you. We should take that clip and send it to some of the gyms. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a depressing one, I think, for a lot of people. But, um, you know, I, I still remember Sylvester Stallone, and he would, you know, it's not pulling any punches to say he was a big user of growth hormone. And he, he said, you know, growth hormone's not a steroid. And I'm like, you're totally right. It's not a steroid. It's actually, it's a small peptide hormone. It's totally different, but it doesn't do anything for your muscle slide. But maybe it took care of his wrinkles and it definitely helped his body fat, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Awesome. Um, we've, we've touched a few times on nutrition. And in the beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned that, you know, essentially, when you're talking about the fact that a 20 year old would use the 20 grams of protein and then, you know, let's say a 60 year old 
um, wouldn't use that as efficiently. So if we, I wanted to circle back to protein um, because we know that, you know, they're not all created equally. And I was hoping you could speak to the importance of a quality of protein and in particular leucine and the leucine threshold and whether that changes with age. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, you know, the, the primer on protein is, is the, is the three macronutrients. So, I mean, for, we won't talk about alcohol, but, uh, I think moderation, if I haven't said that enough is, is the way to go with alcohol. Um, but you know, fats and carbohydrates are, they're, they're fuel, right? They, uh, we need a little bit of fat, uh, no question, because we can't make certain types of compounds that we really need. So we need to eat particularly these long chain polyunsaturated fats. And there's the, you know, eat some fish message or get some flaxseed, et cetera. Um, the low carb uh, keto folks are right. We don't need, pro or, excuse me, we don't need carbohydrates to survive. I think if you're an athlete, you're uh, really cheating yourself out of uh, a performance benefit by going low carb, high fat, particularly if you're trying to, in, in, you know, compete intensely. But protein is, uh, you know, unlike carbs and fats and, and alcohol for that matter, it's it's not as big a fuel source. It's a it's a substrate for building uh, the protein containing structures that we have in our body. So. You know, we're not 100% efficient at recapturing all of the amino acids that arise because we're breaking down proteins like every single minute of every single day. Um, so we, we have a dietary need for protein. Now, the quality of protein refers to, you know, I, I, I was saying earlier, um, there are 20 different amino acids, nine of which are essential. We need to have them. Uh, so proteins are scored with respect to their ability uh, to be digested and their quantity of these essential amino acids. So the long and short is that, and this is, you know, this is just by, this does, you know, it's not a, I'm not making this up. People, you know, people know I get funding from the dairy farmers and everything. So I'm intrinsically biased, but this is just biologic reality. Animal source proteins tend to be higher quality than plant source proteins. If you'd asked me, does it matter? 20 years ago, I'd have said, absolutely. It's a big deal. 15 years ago, I'd be like, uh, maybe, probably, kind of 10 years ago. And I'm beginning to soften more and more because more and more research comes out and I begin to think it matters less and less. So you can get your, your protein from plants. You can get it exclusively from plants if that's what you choose to do. Uh, but I think you have to be a little bit judicious about how you plan your diet with respect to being, if you're, if you're vegan, um, and making sure you get all of those complementary proteins that people you know, seemingly around the globe have figured out need to be paired together. And when I you know, say complementary proteins, it's... Uh, it's a legume and a grain. And, you know, I always, I always think it's fascinating to go to India and hear people eating lentils and rice mm -hmm. in China and Southeast Asia, people are eating rice and some form of, you know, usually soy or tofu. You go to Latin America and it's black beans and corn. You go to the Caribbean and it's red beans and rice. 
you know, and, and, and how have all these people in, in such geographically diverse regions figured this out? Well, it's, you know, it's clearly an evolutionary pressure that these proteins need to be consumed together. I think the more recent concept, as you alluded to in your question, is the role of the amino acid leucine. And it didn't used to be thought that this was such a big deal until we learned that leucine is the amino acid that is not just the building block, it actually kind of turns the light switch on in muscle to begin building and repairing damaged proteins. So from that standpoint, as you said, you know, this leucine trigger is really the, and I don't think it's like an on off switch. I think it's more mm -hmm. like a dimmer switch. You know, you kind of, you need a little bit of leucine to turn the process on. You have, you know, a little bit more leucine, you, the, the lights get brighter, but at a certain point you can add more and more leucine, but you can't turn the lights on any brighter. Right. So, you know, the dimmer switch as you get older, essentially gets, uh, it's, it's harder to turn or, you know, you add the leucine and the dimmer switch doesn't move as much. And so, the sensitivity of the system becomes subdued, if you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's then, you know, that the manifestation of which is you either have to begin to choose higher quality proteins or eat more protein or eat more leucine. And, you know, hence the role of uh, age-related supplements that have leucine in them, for example. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you're pair that with the fact that a lot of people um, have a reduced appetite as they age. So then that makes it even more problematic. So I could see why the role of supplements might actually be even more important. Yeah, I think too, is that uh, you, you, appetite is a big one. Just about everybody as they get again older, that their appetite goes down, you tend to eat less. At the same time, I know it's just pain, it makes aging sound horrible, but you know, dentition is an issue, right? People's teeth aren't quite as good. And so you don't want to chew this stuff that, you know, you probably had no problem chewing on when you were younger. So, and there's a lot of issues, you know, people talk about dysphagia and swallowing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that become problematic. And, and, you know, economically, protein is a much more expensive uh, macronutrient to purchase than, you know, than starch or carbohydrate and definitely than fat. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's great that you did mention that, yes, you can, you know, you can get all the protein you need on a vegetarian or vegan diet. But as you said, you, you would have to have some knowledge there or else you might be eating a lot of processed food. But there's a lot of world champion athletes out there who, who are vegetarian. So we're looking at them and they have some longevity and it's definitely possible. Um, we've talked a lot about muscle and nutrition, but you know, I know you work a lot um, in the Institute of Aging at McMaster, and obviously you've uh, read a lot of literature on aging. So let's talk a minute before we get to the last question about other factors that are important in healthy aging and your thoughts on, on what healthy aging really means. Yeah, I, it, that's changed a lot. Um, I've, I've learned a lot about what aging means from actually from working with people in the aging area that are from different disciplines. And I give uh, you know a big nod here to Dr. Perminder Reina, who is the director of the McMaster Institute for Research on Aging for uh, forcing, if that's the right word, um, people to be more inter-multidisciplinary in their approach uh, to aging. Because, you know, I, I have a 
obviously my own bias to me to age well means to move well. Uh, it means to be strong. It means to, because that's part of my my vision of successful aging, but successful aging means a lot of other things. And I think obviously um, this pandemic has shone a really bright light on what it means to have some degree of social connectedness and to not be uh, socially isolated and, um, and lonely. Uh, and that's a big deal uh, for older individuals. So I think there are probably lots of things that contribute to successful aging. Uh, primary for me is being physically mobile, because if you're not physically mobile, the research term is that your life space begins to shrink. Uh, and we all know what that means. And we can probably picture somebody who's older and lives by themselves and maybe doesn't talk to a lot of people. And I don't know about anybody, but that's certainly not my vision of how I want to age. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think uh, being social is a big part of the picture. And I, I know that you're familiar with the whole blue zones. I actually saw a post that you recently shared about the green zones as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a big thing in the blue zones is the community, right? When we look yeah, at yeah. Uh, even how people, how, you know, happy people are in Finland and you look at how they live in these communes of like 25 people and they all share cooking nights. And I know for an introvert like myself, that can sound <laughs> totally overwhelming. But on the other hand, I can also see like, wow, there's always, you know, someone you can rely on and, you know, someone that's got your back. And, you know, that's not always the case, like you're saying, for for some people that might be really isolated. So Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to ask you the last question, but is there anything else that you wanted to add before that? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I, I, I to be really honest, the the sense of purpose, if you want to call it that, social connection, spiritual connection. I don't know what really, you know, one term encompasses it, but definitely, you know, even these blue zones around the world, they have this common theme that, you know, the ageism in our society, typically in, you know, Western society, that as people get older, they become less useful. And, uh, but in blue zones, they're still very much a part of a vibrant community. So as you said, there's lots of places around the world where older people are still valued. And whatever that means, it certainly means that people have a reason to, uh, to get out of bed and uh, say, this is, this is still one of the days that I want to be around. Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. I think uh, meaning at every age and purpose is, is everything really. You got to have a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah, so for sure. I completely agree. Um, actually, I do have one more question. Do you have any supplements that you recommend besides protein that can help overcome or at least maybe, <laughs> you know, mitigate a bit of that resistance that the muscle has with age? I know I've read a little bit about um, fish oils and vitamin D, but is there much data to support that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll, 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 my supplement shelf is, is short. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I do take a protein supplement, not all the time, every now and again, uh, when I feel like I'm just not getting the, the right nutrition that I need. The, the only other, I would say, three supplements that are in my cabinet. One is vitamin D. Uh, we, live, we live too far north to get good sunshine. And it's a little bit, it is sunny outside today, but it's, man, it's cold out there. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, not good enough sunshine to create our own vitamin D. So I do take that, particularly in the winter. Uh, I do take omega-3 fish oils. Um, I usually have them, you know, again, I probably lean on them a little bit more in the winter, whether that's my, my own perception or not. 
Uh, and the only, I would say, pure, you know, sort of supplement supplement, and people say not a dietary supplement, is creatine. Yeah, same here. And I, I, I've been convinced of the, the, you know, the data from the muscular standpoint for some time. I'm beginning to become much warmer to the data on cognitive function as well. And so I, again, I think if you ask older people, what do you want to hang on to? They would definitely say, you know, oh, definitely my cognitive function and my physical mobility. So uh, I'm banking on the creatine, maybe give me a little bit of edge as I get a little bit older. And now do you take, you know, um, where we live aside geographically, do you take vitamin D and fish oil for muscle purposes? No, I take it for, for probably general health. I mean, I think that the the story on the vitamin D is that these massive mega doses really aren't doing the the you know much good. But definitely keeping yourself out of the deficient or insufficient, uh, there's probably enough literature to suggest that that begins to touch on a lot of things, mm -hmm. cognitive, muscular, um, but just general health wise. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to ask you my last question and ask this to every guest. And the title of the podcast is Imperfect Progress. And I named it that because to me, that just really describes life. Um, and it also describes science and, and research. And obviously, I, I'm interested in life and I'm also interested in science, hence why we're here. And I'm always interested in learning more about my guests because I know that I have a lot of scientists on and you come with a lot of knowledge, but you also come with a lot of life experience. And that's really important for me to hear about as well. So I know you were a rugby player. You spent you know, half of your life in academics. You're a parent and you're a mentor to many students. So I know for sure, like everyone, you've definitely come up against adversity and obstacles. And I always think that when we listen to someone else's story, you know, sometimes one person just says that one thing that really resonates with you. And so if anyone's listening right now and they can hear how you work through adversity and imperfect progress, um, maybe it will resonate with them. So I want to ask, how do you navigate through difficult times or how have you? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I, I, yeah, look, uh, imperfect is, is the, be the title of my biography. No question about that. Uh, progress. Yeah, uh, obviously. Um, you know, I think we've painted a bleak picture of aging, but I want to say that, uh, as I've gotten older, there's obviously some things that I wish, oh, geez, you know, I wish that I was still 20 to do this, but, but I have enjoyed the journey and it, and, and I, you know, I, I tell a story and it, it's not a story, but it's, it's my life journey about how I came into academia and, you know, you mentioned rugby. So I was, you know, like down pad, I was going to become a, a physician and I was going to write the MCAT and I was going to go to medical school. And then two weeks before uh, my fourth year, where I was all set to be the captain of the rugby team at McMaster, where I did my undergrad, I, I broke my leg. And, and not I just broke it, I, I, mean, I cracked the kneecap. It was really, it's my height of, you know, when people say, what's the worst pain? I'm like, have you ever broken your kneecap? Like, wow. I'm like, yeah, that was it. Um, and so I couldn't play. And all of a sudden I had this cast on my leg and I couldn't really do anything was feeling really sorry for myself and, you know, blah, 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 crushed my dream and all this sort of stuff. But I decided to do a senior thesis in my, in my fourth year 
and I got into the lab and I, and I just, I never really turned back after that. I really got into science, fell in love with it and uh, began to enjoy the experience. Now, everybody thinks it's a lightning bolt. Uh, young people are looking for that moment when all of a sudden you have an epiphany and the sun shines down and, you know, and a, a, an otherworldly voice speaks to you. And that's not what happened. Um, it took me some time to realize that I enjoyed research, that I still was like, oh, maybe I should write the MCAT. And but I was enjoying it. And then I went and did a PhD, uh, switched gears a little bit, went into human physiology. Um, and then even at the end of my PhD, I was like, you know, much, maybe I'll go back to Matt. I was like, you know, I kind of like this research game. And I did a postdoc down in Texas et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't probably, well, it wasn't definitely until I got the job uh, back at McMaster. And so this is, you know, I'm skipping uh, a lot of years in between and a long distance relationship, which worked out well because uh, still been my wife uh, for coming up 25 years this year. Wow. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's been a great journey, but I, I, I don't think if somebody had said to me, even until the day I sort of landed the job and realized I sat down, hey, you're going to be a university professor, you're going to do this, you're going to, that I would have believed them. So uh, enjoy the journey. Don't expect for your moment. And if you do have a moment, like, I, I'm so happy for you, but don't expect for the discovery to be a lightning bolt. It's, sometimes it's an evolution. Uh, you'll have to fight self-doubt. You'll have to fight setbacks. You'll have to you know, you're going to have to battle. Uh, and I think, you know, if there's nothing else that, you know, uh, uh, preparing for sport and training uh, teaches us is that, you know, it's a relentless sort of, uh, as you as you say, uh, imperfect journey uh, and progress. And that's really what counts. So uh, and, and now here I am 24 years later and I can't imagine my life any other way. So I guess something must have worked out OK. That's awesome. Now, thank you. I feel like I just got therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, and I, I reflect back on it and I think like, am I embellishing or am I making it up? And honestly, it's, it's a series of just bizarre circumstance and probably, you know, uh, a lot of self-talk and a lot of support from a lot of people uh, to get me to realize that I, I, I do enjoy what I do and, and even, the best job out there is still going to have days where it sucks. So uh, just ask any, any physician who's out there, you know, on the front lines and hat tip to you if you're doing it during this pandemic, because it's, uh, it's a brutal profession sometimes. Absolutely. I can't even imagine what that's like right now. Um, well, thank you for that. No, that's, that's great insight and resonated with me. So hopefully it resonates with yes. someone else listening as well. Well, I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time today. I think it was super informative and hopefully, you know, if someone's listening and they're, they're not exercising, hopefully they'll start and realize that, you know, it doesn't have to be for an hour at a time. And then for everyone else, hopefully some take homes on how to, you know, try and best mitigate some of these, uh, we won't say they were, you know, depressing conversation, but some of these things that happen naturally to us. But life, life, life. Just, you know, try, yeah. try and slow down a little bit of life. Yeah. yeah, you know, keep moving and all that great stuff. No, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Anne. Thanks very much for having me. It was great to chat with you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Phillips, you can definitely follow him on Twitter at Mackinprof. That's M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F. And he's quite active there. You can also learn more about the McMaster University Physical Activity Center, PACE, at pace.mcmaster.ca. I hope you took away some important messages today. And essentially, if you're not lifting weights right now, it's a really good idea to start incorporating them into your program. And not only for the reasons we discussed, but also for bone health, which is another important element of aging and preventing fragility fractures from falls. I have one ask, and I would really appreciate it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts right now and rate my podcast. It would mean a lot to me because what it does when you increase your ratings is it allows more people to get eyes on the podcast. And that means more people have ears on the podcast and more people are learning from these great experts like Dr. Phillips. And the whole purpose of me doing my podcast is to translate scientific knowledge to the masses. So that would be great. I would really appreciate it. Also share this episode on your favorite social media platform and tag me at Guzman Nutrition on Twitter or at Guzman Ann on Instagram. I love knowing who's listening and I really enjoy communicating with my listeners. So that would be amazing. Until next time, make time for movement now. And I know that that can be hard, but just keep in mind what we talked about today, that it doesn't have to be an hour, even those small bits of movement throughout the day really add up. And those small daily investments, they add up and may save you time trying to repair your body later on in life. So let's give ourselves the best shot at living a long, healthy life by investing early in the quote unquote future you. So let's keep our heads up, eyes up the road, focus on our goals. And right now for some of us, it's just about putting one foot in front of the other. Let's hope that everything continues to improve with this pandemic. And I hope to hear from you out there on social media. Otherwise, I will be back here soon with your next episode. And thank you so much again for being a part of this community.